And the church said, Amen. Amen. At this time, I'd like to dismiss the children who have pre-registered for children's worship to be dismissed. You can make your way toward Pastor Nathan and Miss Amy there at the doors uh, to go for your children's session today. So make your way in that direction. I'd like to ask the rest of us to please open our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. John 15, verse 18, through the very beginning of chapter 16, verse 4, will be our text today. So please open your copy of God's Word to John 15. As you're turning there, it's uh, with a very grateful heart that I'm able to say that Emma has had another very good week. She's continuing to cough more and more, and the cough is stronger. And uh, just seeing a little more movement and controlled movement by her in therapy. So we praise the Lord for that and ask you to continue to keep praying, if you will. You've been so faithful, and we are grateful. Follow with me as I read, beginning in John 15 at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes... You may remember that I told them to you. Would you please bow with me and let's pray. Oh Lord, thinking about suffering and persecution is never pleasant. Yet Father, you told us to expect it. So this morning, Lord, as we hear the words of Jesus, help us to take them to heart. Help us to see clearly. And to think clearly that we may be effective witnesses for you in this very dark world. Grant that we would not lose heart. 
But Father, work within us to renew our commitment to you and our passion for the Lord Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. It's clear from hearing the words of Jesus in this passage that following him will not be easy. It's never been easy to follow Christ. But Jesus worked to prepare us for that. After all, did not Jesus say to his disciples that if we want to follow him, we must take up our cross and die daily? Did Jesus not tell us that if we are to follow him, that we must deny, deny ourselves? Did Jesus not also say that whoever wants to keep his life must lose it? The call to follow Christ is the call to take up the cross. And I would remind you that the cross is symbolic for death and suffering. So to carry the cross is to accept the suffering that comes as we walk the path that Jesus walked. And it's a path that those who have preceded us also walked. As we recognize that the call to follow Christ is the call to follow the path of persecution, we are also walking the path that Peter and Paul walked, that Stephen and James walked all the way to their deaths. We are following on the same road that Polycarp and Wycliffe walked and that Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Jim Elliot also traveled. It is the path of suffering and persecution because of Jesus. Those words are not easy to hear and they're not only difficult to listen to, but they're also shocking to us. They're shocking to us here in 2020 in America because Christianity had, had claimed a position of privilege since our nation's birth. And you may notice that I used the past tense had because that place of privilege is no more. Now I want to be clear. I do not say that based upon the outcome of this election no matter what it may be. I make that statement based upon two, two truths. One, Jesus told us to expect persecution. And we should not expect that in America as Christians we would be any different from all the generations of Christ followers that have preceded us. The second reason I make that claim is simply the fact that the past 50 years bear out the changing attitude toward our culture about Christianity. For a long time, any positive feelings toward the followers of Christ have been receding. And it has now reached a point where followers of Jesus are viewed with skepticism about the veracity of our faith and even looked at with disdain and anger. We should not be shocked nor surprised by this. A survey of the last 2,000 years of Christian history shows that it is the exception when followers of Jesus are not persecuted or treated with scorn. In many ways, America has been an anomaly in this truth. Eugene Peterson, an author and pastor in his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, points this out. Hear this quote. 1,800 years or so of Hebrew history capped by full exposition in Jesus Christ, tell us that God's revelation of himself is rejected far more often than it is accepted, is dismissed by far more people than embrace it, and has either been attacked or ignored by every major culture or civilization in which it is given its witness. 
magnificent Egypt, fierce Assyria, beautiful Babylon, artistic Greece, political Rome, enlightened France, Nazi Germany, Renaissance Italy, Marxist Russia, Maoist China, and pursuit of happiness America. The community of God's people has survived in all these cultures and civilization, but always as a minority and always marginal to the mainstream, never statistically significant, significant, end quote. Followers of Jesus will experience persecution in one form or another because to follow Jesus is to take the path of the persecuted. Verse 18, Jesus clearly prepares us for this. He says, if the world hates you. Now that word if signifies the assumption that it will happen. It's kind of like saying, if you jump in the water, you will get wet. It's a given. So Jesus is preparing us that the world will hate followers of Jesus. But then he also says, know this, it has hated me before it hated you. The world had an intense dislike and aversion and antipathy toward Jesus that will be shared by those who follow him. And the reason for this hatred is explained in verse 19. He says, if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus is simply stating what will be echoed later in the New Testament that we are in the world but not of the world. And because we are not of the world, the world will have a dislike toward Christians. We march to the beat of a different drum. The values and actions of the believer are signified and identified by Jesus. They are not determined by any other source. I would remind you that the word world signifies those who are in rebellion against God. Since we have been called out of the world, that means that we are no longer in rebellion against God. We are loyalists seeking to follow God in a world rebelling against Him. Therefore, we will be disliked. In many ways, we'll be like a, a man by the name of George Galatus. George worked at the Millstone Nuclear Power Station in Waterford, Connecticut. And he discovered that something was horribly wrong there. Rules were being ignored. Shortcuts were being taken. And these, this, uh, this aspersion toward the rules was causing grave danger to the community around. This is a nuclear power plant. So George started sounding the warning. Telling his supervisors that there were some serious problems on the way. Speaking to whomever would listen. And an amazing thing happened. Over a period of two years, George was ostracized. Not by his superiors who didn't want to hear it, but by his co-workers. He would walk into the cafeteria and people would slowly scatter away from him. He would walk into a room full of conversation only to hear that conversation stop the moment he entered. Co-workers would meet him in the hall and tell him to be quiet. That he was just causing trouble. That he shouldn't shake up things. But George continued until eventually the Nuclear Regulatory Commission took word and the plant was cited for serious violations. In fact, it was shut down. What happened to George because he spoke the truth is a same, the same situation that we will encounter. When we stand for God's will, 
and we speak up for the way that God intends things to be, we can expect to be persecuted. Not that we are walking around with a holier-than-thou attitude and finger-pointing, but that we are simply being light in a dark world. And I would remind you, what happens in a dark room whenever the light is turned on? It causes the eyes to hurt. And when the world's eyes hurt, they try to turn the light off again. We will be hated because we are not of the world. And we will be hated because we follow the model of Jesus. Jesus speaks of this in verses 20 through 24. He reiterates something that he said earlier in the evening. In verse 20 he says, remember what I said. A servant is not greater than his master. Jesus had said that in John 13 when he washed the feet of the disciples. And he said to them, a servant's not greater than his master. What I have done to you in washing your feet, you do to one another. But here Jesus takes that principle and he applies it to persecution. If Jesus was persecuted, we also can expect persecution. Now lest this cause us despair, he also gives us a a nugget, a ray of hope. Because look what else he says in verse 20. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Yes, the majority may reject Christianity. They may reject the gospel. But there are those that will believe. Therefore, in the midst of persecution, do not stop sharing the gospel. Because there are those that will hear and come to faith. Do not stop preaching the truth. Because there are those that will hear and repent. Do not stop evangelizing. Because there are those who that will believe. But nevertheless, he says... Verse 21, they will do these things to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Now when he says they will do these things, the they to whom he refers is the Pharisees. The immediate context of verses 21 through 24 deals with the rejection Jesus suffered from the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And he's preparing the disciples that in the immediate years following his ascension, they will be persecuted by the same group. Now, we may not face that exact circumstance, but what we find here is a paradigm for us to understand suffering. To understand the reasons underneath the persecution. So, we start in verses 22. Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them, that is the Pharisees, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. So, here's the first reason that persecution will occur. It will occur, we will be persecuted because of the rejection of divine revelation. Put another way, we will be persecuted because we stand for absolute objective truth and the world does not. So when Jesus says, I spoke to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. He's not saying the Pharisees were sinless. But when Jesus spoke, they could no longer claim ignorance. They had heard Their guilt was magnified, it was elevated, they were now accountable. They could not claim ignorance to the truth. And the thing is that as Jesus spoke, he spoke with divine authority. He spoke the words of God. Even his enemies recognized this. They said, no one has spoken with authority like Jesus. Jesus said to hear him speak is to hear God speak. Jesus spoke of divine, objective truth and those around him covered their ears. And the issue was authority. They rejected the authority of Jesus. And the same issue confronts us today. Underneath every ethical issue where we find ourselves clashing with the culture around us lies this primary issue. 
It is the issue of absolute truth. It is the issue of where our decisions will find their guidance. It is the issue of on what foundation we determine what is right and what is wrong. Christianity is hated because it claims divine authority. And this flies in the face of a culture that views humanity as its, divine, as its ultimate authority. Now the sociological term for this is secularism. Secularism occurs when human reason and human ability are elevated as the final arbiters of truth. In other words, truth is not found in God out there. Truth is found within the, the mind of every human being. Therefore, you have your truth, I have my truth, they have their truth, but there is no overarching one ultimate truth. That's the way our culture sees things. That is the reason today that we can redefine sexuality and even define our gender and do away with genders because truth is not located out there that we must adhere to. Now it's located inside so that whatever we want becomes truth. Opinion and preference are elevated to a divine standard. But the problem is this. When that happens, a society and a culture cannot sustain itself. You see, when human reason and ability are elevated as the judge of truth, religion will be pushed to the fringes of society. In fact, it would not only be pushed to the fringes of society, it will be viewed as dangerous to society because we dare question human autonomy by saying that God is sovereign. The results of this will not be good in a culture. It's been said that the wise will learn from history. For those that do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So if you would allow me for a moment to step into a brief history lesson. And of course you know what it means when a pastor says brief. Absolutely nothing. If we are wise, we will learn from what happened in the French Revolution. Because what many of the things that occurred over 200 years ago in France, we see being repeated today. In the 1790s, the French, there was a revolt against the, the kings, the dictatorships. The storming of the Bastille marked the turning point where now the people held power. And one of the things that the revolutionaries sought to do was to eradicate the Christian heritage of France. To do away with it. So on October 10th of 1793, the revolutionaries marched into the Notre Dame Cathedral and tore down the statue of the Virgin Mary. And they replaced it. They replaced it with a statue to the goddess of reason. They were going to worship human reason. The French Revolution embraced secularism. Religion was, was, they sought to eradicate it, but at the very least push it to the edges of society. Religious belief was replaced by the cult of reason. But things didn't go as hoped. When God was dethroned, the question came to be, whose opinion, whose reason will determine how things ought to be? Because if you have your opinion and I have my opinion, how can we determine who is actually right? And what happened is without God serving as the judge of truth, violence broke out. The reign of terror began. 
and those who were in power because when there is no God, the one who has might makes right. When they recognized what was going on, they decided that they would create the cult of the supreme being to restore order. It wasn't God, the God of Christianity. It was God made in their image. In other words, they said, we do need an overarching truth, but we will make that God in our image. This continued for some time until 1801 when Napoleon Bonaparte rose to power as a dictator in France and reestablished the Roman Catholic Church. That became the state religion. But understand, Bonaparte did not do this because he was a believer. He did it so that the church would be subservient to him and support him in what he did. The church became nothing more than a political pawn to be used by Bonaparte. And even to this day, all major buildings in France are owned by the government. So the rebuilding of Notre Dame Cathedral from the fire several years ago is not being conducted by the church. It's being conducted by the nation of France. But do you understand what happened? The church was pushed to the fringes. Then it was recognized absolute truth was needed. And the church was called back so that it would support those that are in power. We must always guard against the church being viewed as a political group whose opinion is to be swayed so that we will throw our support toward anyone. We must stand as the people who speak God's word, who speak what is true, and live according to that. That is our calling. We are not to be a, the church is not to be a group that can be purchased. We serve the Lord our God and understand that in doing that, we will face suffering. Today, secularism has taken hold in our culture. Now, as a result, we will be persecuted. But here's the second reason. Look at verse 23. We will be persecuted because of a hatred toward God. So we are persecuted because we hold to authority in a culture that denies authority. And right behind it all is an outright hatred for God. When human reason is seen as divine, God gets in the way. In fact, today, any talk of God is is being eradicated and viewed with disdain as being viewed as backwards. The scientific theory of evolution is being applied to religion. And it goes something like this. Before humanity evolved to the point where we understood things because of science, religion and God were necessary. You had to believe in God to explain the world. But now in our pride we say science has figured it all out. So therefore God and religion are no longer necessary. And those who believe in God and truth, well, they're leading us backwards to the dark ages. So that now, belief in God will cause one to be viewed as anti-intellectual. Once again, this is nothing new. In 1927, the famous English poet and essayist T.S. Eliot became a Christian. Baptized and confirmed in the church. Now prior to his conversion, T.S. Eliot was a part of a a small group called the London's Bloomsbury Group. They were called that. They lived in a neighborhood uh, called Bloomsbury. So they met together to talk about society and literature and things like that. They were shocked by Eliot's conversion to the faith. Writer Virginia Woolf became the de facto leader of the group. And after Eliot's conversion to Christianity, she wrote a letter to one of her peers. She wrote, and I quote, I have had a most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Elliot, 
who may be called dead to us all from this day forward. He has become a believer in God and immortality, and he goes to church. I was shocked. A corpse would seem more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by a fire and believing in God. End quote. When I read that, I'm reminded that our battle is spiritual. We wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians that we are to be ready to take captive every argument that is raised up against the knowledge of God. Persecution will come because of the rejection of divine revelation. It will come because of hatred toward God. And it will come because people love the darkness more than the light. Verse 24, Jesus in some ways repeats what he said in verse 22. But this time the focus is on his works, not what he said. He said, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Where his words spoke of authority, his works showed that the light was dawning. Remember, every miracle that Jesus did was to point to the truth that the light of the Messiah was dawning into the world. So when they saw his works and they rejected him, they were rejecting the light. Now once again, this is a model for what happens to us. This model is seen in Acts chapter 19. It's the city of Ephesus. Paul had begun preaching in Ephesus and boy was he having a great series of meetings. People were being saved. They were claiming the name of Christ. And you know it was so radical that when they were saved and following Christ, they stopped worshiping idols. And that's where the problems began. You see, Ephesus was the center of the worship of the Greek goddess Artemis or the Roman god Diana. It's one and the same. And because it was the center of worship of those gods, it was the place where idols, silver, silver was mined and melted into idols and sold. Here ends the problem. People are coming to Jesus. They're refusing to worship Artemis. That means they're not buying the idols. That means our economy is going down the tubes. we got to stop this Jesus. So you know what happened? A riot broke out. The silversmith said, Christianity is false. Why? Because we need money. Their love of money was greater than the love of the truth. And that's exactly the same thing that happens around us. Rather than hearing the gospel, rather than following the gospel, we would rather cling to the things that we love rather than following Christ. Loving the darkness more than the light. That has been played out over millennia. Now, I recognize that this is difficult a difficult message to hear. It's difficult to preach. I mean, quite frankly, this is not good PR for becoming a Christian. Somebody never told Jesus about smart marketing, though. But he doesn't leave us without hope. See, we have hope in the midst of persecution. We have hope in the days that lie ahead. And the first is this, to take comfort because none of this is going to take God by surprise. Look at verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. When it says the word that is written in their law, that's shorthand for the Old Testament. The quote, they hated me without a cause, is found two times in the Psalms. And it's believed that Jesus is specifically referencing Psalm 69 here. Where David, the, the 
prototype of the Messiah is suffering. And he's suffering because he hasn't done anything wrong. He says that must be fulfilled. It's a reminder that as history is unfolding, it's unfolding under the hand of God. So persecution does not take God by surprise. In fact, we are told in verse 26 that when the Helper comes, the Helper will strengthen us and give us the divine help that we need. And notice in verse 26, two times Jesus emphasizes that the Helper comes from the Father. Verse 26, the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father... And then later he says, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Now, there has been a large debate theologically about what that means, but we shouldn't lose the primary meaning. Our help comes from the Lord, directly from the throne of God. In times of trouble, God is aware. He is present. He is going to supply exactly what the church needs to fulfill the mission. Because what does the Spirit do? It brings us to bear witness. That leads me to the second word of hope. Take courage. God will accomplish His plan. What does He say? The Helper will lead us to bear witness. You will bear witness. You've been with me from the beginning. Jesus tells the disciples, you have seen everything. And it's a reminder to us that there is a historical foundation for our faith. We serve a God who is real. Jesus existed. He is not some mythological figure. The miracles are real. We have a historical foundation with which to go into the world to say, here is the truth. And the Spirit empowers us to do that. You recognize that any time the church has become subservient to the state, the Christian witness has suffered. But when the church has been persecuted, the church has grown. Take heart. I remember as a little boy watching in 1979 as the update was given every day about the American hostages held in Tehran. 1979, the Ayatollah Khomeini and a group of Shiite Muslims seized control of the nation. As part of their control and desire to establish an Islamic kingdom, churches were literally, if not padlocked, burned down. But it didn't stop the church in Iran. Brothers and sisters, the church just went underground. One of the pastors who survived at that time is a man by the name of Tad Stewart. He had been pastoring a church in Tehran, and then when the persecution started, they started meeting in secret. In a very clandestine way, moving around the city, meeting where they could. And Tad said the most amazing thing happened. The church started to grow. They had to meet multiple times in multiple places every Sunday because their numbers were doubling and tripling. He said people smuggled they smuggled Bibles into the worship service like the Bibles were pure gold. And he said when the Bible was read, you could hear a pin drop. It was like electricity in their midst. And he said this secret group of believers began having an impact not only in Tehran and Iran, but all throughout the Middle East. The church of God will not be stopped. His purpose will go through. And this is the third thing. Remember that. Let's remind each other of that. In fact, Jesus concludes this, this section by saying, I've told you these things so that when the hour comes, when persecution happens, you may remember that I told them to you. He wants us to remember so that according to verse 1, we won't fall away. 
You see, the temptation is when persecution starts to withdraw. But he says, rather than withdraw, keep preaching. Keep living. Live for the Lord. Remember these things. That's why meeting together is so important. It's not by accident that in the section preceding Jesus' teaching on persecution, he taught about love. Love one another. Because if you go into a world that hates you, the church needs to be that place where you are reminded of God's love. When you walk into that workplace and you're ridiculed for your faith, and even passed over for promotions because you claim the name of Christ, you need to come back to a place that says you are loved and it is worth it. Student, when you go into the school and you are pushed to believe things that are contrary to the scripture, and you stand your ground and you come to this place, you are to be reminded you are loved. Another part of that is discipleship. In the face of persecution, we need to double down on discipling. Now, I know that right now, due to the pandemic, we've had to change how we do discipleship. Nathan has been offering classes online. Some classes are meeting here. But the time will come when we will start our discipleship classes again. And I encourage you, be a part of them. We need to anchor deep in who God is. So that when the winds of persecution blow, we will not be blown over. We must anchor deep in who God is. Therefore, we need not fear. So today, church, yes, persecution will happen. But we serve a God who is over all. I want to ask you, if you will, to bow your heads with me. Gracious Lord, I thank you that in the midst of changing times, you do not change. And I thank you, Father, that even the fact that we may suffer, even though that fact is hard to hear, Lord, it reminds us that you are in control of all things. So Lord, help us to, to dig down deep into who you are. And to stand firm, to speak the truth with love, and to let the gospel be the first thing off of our lips. Grant these things, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.